0: And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle?
1: In the famous Lord of the Rings trilogy, we are confronted with the pitiable, wretched character Gollum. Gollum at times shows repentance and goodness, but at other times shows treachery and violence towards the heroes of the story, towards Frodo and Sam. And if if you're reading the book or watching the movies and you come across those moments where Sam is just fed up and ready to end Gollum once and for all, you find yourself again just begging, just do it. Now don't, find, don't find mercy on this wretched creature. You'll, you'll spare a lot of heartache for the rest of the story if you just enact justice and slay him. And that frustrated call, that cry you might holler at the TV as you watch, is similar to the cry of Jonah we see here in our last study in this small book. So if you remember the story so far, Jonah has been commissioned by God to speak judgment against the wicked city of Nineveh. But he's disobeyed. He's run far away. And God has relentlessly pursued Jonah with both justice and grace, sending a storm to almost drown him, and then at the last minute, swallowing him up in a large fish and sparing his life. Last week, we saw Jonah change course after that ordeal. He repented, and he went on to obey the Lord and go proclaim judgment on Nineveh. And what we saw last week was amazing. Nineveh responded to Jonah's sermon with repentance, didn't they? We called it extreme repentance, fasting and prayer and sackcloth and sitting in ashes. And God, in compassion and mercy, relented. He turned and he forgave them and he decided to spare their lives. And so we come to the end of our story this morning. How do we find Jonah after that? Exulting in God's mercy. Two things this morning to consider from Jonah 4. Really simple. First, the anger of Jonah. And second, the compassion of the Lord. So first, the anger of Jonah there in verse 1. Jonah's message has had a profound impact on Nineveh. As one man, they've turned to God in repentance, the city of 120,000. And as we begin chapter 4, and as is so often the case in the short book of Jonah, we are again surprised because Jonah's reaction to the Ninevites' repentance and God's mercy is not glee, but anger. We read there, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. So Jonah sees tens of thousands of souls turn to God in repentance and receive his salvation. What does he do? He seethes with fury. Why? Verse two, and Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, "O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Why is Jonah so angry? Because he, he knew what God was like. And although he loved God's mercy in his own life, he shuddered to think of God's mercy extended to his enemies. This is not just mildly disturbing for Jonah. This isn't just a bad day for him. He is exceedingly angry. Up to this point throughout Jonah, it's been God's anger that's been on the forefront, right? Both the Ninevites and then at Jonah himself. But now as God's anger relents... Jonah's anger just escalates, and he's condemning God and saying, you know what? I I obeyed you. I I believed you would bring your word of judgment to pass, but just like I suspected all the time, Lord, you changed your mind. You brought mercy, not justice. I can't live with that. You know, I I loved reading stories by Paul Harvey growing up. But Paul Harvey had a radio broadcast for years, and he would begin a story with something familiar or something just kind of plain, and then by the end he would bring in a famous person or a famous event and shock you. Oh, that was they're connected? And he'd finish his, his radio broadcast all the time by saying, and now you know the rest of the story. That's basically what we're seeing here, right? Because in the three sermons so far, we have we haven't known why Jonah is fleeing from God. It's not been told us. Well, here Jonah says it himself. He makes it extremely clear. Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord. He fled from his divinely received task to preach to the Ninevites because he was deathly afraid God would spare their lives. And now we know the rest of the story. And I can't help but think just how self-centered Jonah is here, right? Because where was he just a few weeks earlier? Drowning in the sea, utterly helpless, completely alone. And what had God done? He had treated him with incredible mercy. He had pulled his life up from the pit. He delivered him from the grave. He'd given him new, renewed life. And Jonah had proclaimed salvation belongs to the Lord. But now, now that the Lord's salvation is towards Nineveh, it's just unacceptable to Jonah. I mean, the, the mercy that pulled him out of the sea was fine. That's good. That's, that's okay. That same mercy extended to a pagan enemy nation of his people's. That couldn't be. Those words Jonah uses to describe God's character in verse two echo the passage Jason read for us earlier, from, or Abby read for us earlier from Exodus thirty-four, where we see God Himself proclaiming to Moses what He's like. He is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents from disaster. Do you see the contrast of speeds in these verses? Jonah made haste to run from God. And God's speed and his judgment? Well, he ran after Jonah, yes, but he showered him with mercy, bringing him to repentance. And then when he got to Nineveh, God patiently gave 40 days to Nineveh to repent. And he just graciously poured out his forgiveness on them. You know, we're all slow to certain things. You might be slow in the mornings until you get your coffee. You may be slow to make amends when your feelings have been hurt. It's interesting here. God is slow too, isn't he? He is slow to anger with sinners, with us. He delights to give us opportunity to repent and turn for forgiveness. The apostle Peter writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is angry, that's true. And his anger is perfect. He, he wouldn't be God if he wasn't angry at evil, at our sin. And yet, he's so merciful, he relents from disaster. For Nineveh, for Jonah, for you. You see, Jonah wasn't only fleeing God's judgment when he boarded that ship for Tarshish. He was fleeing God's mercy. He was fleeing God's salvation towards his enemies. And and friends, before we turn too quickly to condemn Jonah's heartlessness, let's check our own hearts on that, right? How, church, how might we avoid God's mercy? I mean, that sounds silly, right? I mean, we love God's mercy. We sing about it all the time. We pray for it. We rejoice in it. We know it's it's marvelous. It's wonderful. It's restorative to us. And yet, I think, church, that we can avoid God's mercy, can't we? How? Well, often, encountering God's mercy towards us means we need to be ready for it and in need of it. Encountering God's mercy to us in our sin will mean necessitate us being real with our sin. It will mean opening us, ourselves up as the wretches we know we are. And we spend our whole lives trying to cover that up. We bristle at God's conviction. We, we want him, but we recoil when his mercy confronts our arrogant pride. When it, when it prods our squeaky clean Christianity. When it rankles our put together exterior Brothers and sisters, I was convicted about this this past week. How might we miss God's mercy by stubbornly remaining in our sin? Let's not miss it. Let's not miss the beautiful mercy of God because we shrink back from owning up to what's in our hearts and facing it for what it is. As Jason prayed earlier, God doesn't help those who help themselves, He helps the helpless. And Jonah here, well, he's incredibly self-focused, isn't he? I mean, commentators point out that he uses the pronouns I or my nine times in just those two verses, two and three. And one pastor, Eric Redmond, writes, This is depravity at its finest. The creature is accusing the creator of sin and injustice rather than looking within and saying, God is always right. My anger must mean that something is wrong with me. See, Jonah is not concerned with Nineveh. He hates the idea that God would spare a country opposed to his people, Israel. And the crazy thing is that we know later, Assyria, Nineveh's country would indeed turn and defeat Israel, Jonah's country. Jonah is preaching salvation and God is granting repentance to those who would later destroy his people. Why? Why would God save them if he knew they would end up doing that? Because of his character, because of all the things we've seen throughout Jonah, that he's, he's sovereign and compassionate, both to his own people and to his enemies. Jonah has both spiritual amnesia, forgetting how merciful God has been with him, and spiritual arrogance, despising God's mercy towards his enemies. And so there in verse 3, in light of God's character, Jonah says, therefore, and he, he doesn't say, therefore, because of your mercy, O Lord, I fall down in worship before you. He doesn't say, therefore, because of your gracious disposition to sinners, I humble myself before you. No, in complete selfish pride, he just despairs of his life. If the Ninevites get forgiveness, God, it'll be over my dead body. That's really what he's saying. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. Notice where Jonah's selfish anger has gotten him. He is miserable. And church, we cannot forget this. When we persist in stubborn sin and refuse to respond to God's merciful conviction, we will be miserable. It just makes sense. We're cutting ourselves off from the only sense of joy we could ever get and we're believing that remaining in our sin will still pay off. It'll grant us relief. Christian, turn to God. Don't test his patience. He's willing to show you abundant mercy if you turn to him. And Christian, don't despair because God's mercy extends even to you in the deepest sins of your heart, even to me even to our enemies even to the terrorists of ISIS even to the dictators of North Korea his mercy has no limits and we see his mercy even in the patient handling of his servant Jonah because anyone can lash out in anger when Jonah accuses them of what he's accusing God of any any god could lecture his opponent but this god he asks Jonah a question isn't that so merciful just provoking his heart, just getting down deep into his soul. Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And that brings us to our second point, and really the theme of the entire book of Jonah, and that's the compassion of the Lord. The compassion of the Lord is clearly seen in the remainder of this passage because not only does God ask Jonah a question, but then he goes on to kindly provide Jonah with an object lesson, a real-life tutorial in what his mercy looks like. So there in verse 5, Jonah stomps out of Nineveh in a huff. This is a temper tantrum through and through. He exits the city, chooses the east side to make a shelter for himself and stage a sit-in protest against God's mercy. And even though the Ninevites are turning to God in repentance, Jonah's just holding out hope that maybe God will just come to his senses and send down fire and he'll see a really good show. He builds a shelter to survive the heat, and he sits down in his front row seat for this show of God's judgment. And that's where God, in his compassion, just puts on his teacher hat and rolls out an object lesson for Jonah. Verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Notice again here God's appointed power over nature. So just like the fish in chapter two, God appoints the forces of nature to come to the rescue of his servant. So this plant grows up quickly to shield Jonah from the sun. It was probably some sort of gourd. Gourd Gourds have big leaves that could prevent the hot sun from just burning up Jonah. And Jonah here, his mood just shifts. Verse seven, he is exceedingly glad. I mean, salvation from the heat of the sun causes him just to rejoice with great happiness. Mercy of God towards Nineveh, exceedingly displeased. Mercy of God towards himself, he's just eating it up. But God is not done with his appointing. The very next day, after a reprieve from the sun, God appoints a worm, a very hungry caterpillar, to attack the plant so that it withers. A storm does his bidding. A fish does what he says. A plant obeys his voice. And now a worm even responds to his command. Storm, worm, God's in charge of it all. And now Jonah is without any more shelter from the beating sun. He begins to grow faint under its heat. The sun is bearing down on him mercilessly, just like he desired God's justice to bear down mercilessly on the Ninevites. And whereas he was devastated by God's lack of judgment against Nineveh, now he's devastated by God's lack of mercy against him. And he's so angry that God would just have the nerve to destroy his plant, take away his shade. This is his only joy in his anger. God's still not done appointing, right? Verse 8, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. If you look in other places in scripture, a, a wind that comes from the east is usually bringing God's judgment. So when, when Moses prayed for locusts to come onto Egypt uh, as a plague, it came from the east. And so that the sun is beating down on him and now the wind is just scorching him. And we can feel a little bit of sympathy for him, right? I mean, it's been about 100 degrees out this week. And if you've done any outside activities, you felt that heat and it's just sapped all your energy and just wished that you weren't alive anymore, right? And Jonah has no AC to retreat to. There's no relief. And so he reiterates what he had said before in verse three, Lord, it's better for me to die than to live anymore. Again, do you see where Jonah's bitter anger has taken him? He's now calling the shots and he's saying, God, really, I'm, I, you've, you've tested my patience. You no longer have right to tell me what, I, what should or should not be done. I I'm going to tell you now, okay? Death is better for me now than life. Jonah is playing God in his anger, isn't he? I wonder, though, have you been at a place in your life, maybe even this morning, where you're just so despondent like Jonah? You trusted God. You, you tried to obey him. But then the things he put in your life just... just seemed unfair. It just seemed like he wasn't worth trusting anymore. Or so you think. Maybe the anger is kind of a residue on your heart this morning. Maybe you've come angry with God this morning. You, you wouldn't say that. I mean, we're in church. You, maybe you, you would say you're angry at your family members, or you're angry at some other friends, or you're angry at the circumstances in your life. You're angry at Politicians. But really, if you take your anger and boil it down to its bare ingredients, you'll find that each ingredient of your anger is pointed directly at God. Because if what we've learned about in Jonah is true, and God is just sovereign over your life, then whatever you hate about your life this morning has in some way been allowed by God. And to be honest, if you you want to be honest, you should be angry with him. That's where your anger would go, if you're truly honest. Friend, if that's you this morning, God asks you the same question that he's asking Jonah. Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to claim you know better than God? Again, this pastor, Eric Bredmond writes, The Lord, since he rules over all, is free not to move on the heart of someone to show us favor. He's free not to grant forgiveness. Or offer an apology on our timetable. God is not in debt to us to do anything. The Lord cannot be tamed on the leash of our expectations. So, brothers and sisters, let's be radically humbled this morning in our anger. I've been angry this week. Have you? We must realize we're not on the throne of the universe. God is. He's been so merciful to just remind us again and again and again that when we seek to run from him, we just end up miserable. He's so patient towards us, isn't he? Just wanting to bring us to repentance, to a deeper knowledge of himself, a deeper experience of his love. Church, God is not out to get you. He's he's determined to show mercy to you as you seek him in Christ. Christ. Do you do well to be angry with that merciful God? Shouldn't you instead just humble yourself before him, express your confusion to him, and find in him the refuge you so desperately seek in other places? Well, Jonah isn't happy. He wasn't happy before when he saw God's mercy on Nineveh, and he certainly isn't happy now that God has destroyed his plant. So he answers God, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. I mean, he's really digging his heels in, isn't he, into that hot sand. God, you don't understand. My job here is done, and I hate what you've done with it. I'm thrown in the towel now. You, I'm going to do what I want to do, and that's die. And it's interesting that Jonah ends on a cliffhanger. We see God's retort, but we don't know what Jonah responds What is God's retort? Well, he he turns the table on Jonah, doesn't he? Showing him just how shallow his understanding of mercy is. There in verse 10, he rolls out the results of the object lesson. Jonah, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Jonah, you love that plant. You didn't do anything for it. You didn't even... Plant it You loved your comfort, you loved me for caring for you, delivering you from the discomfort of the heat. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than one hundred and twenty thousand persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Jonah, you were angry a plant died. (laughs) Don't you see how terrible it would be for me to allow a whole city to perish if they turned to me in repentance? Jonah, do you know who I am? Do you remember back in chapter one when I came to you the first time, how Nineveh's sin and evil had just risen up before me and I had a message of judgment for them? And do you see how I had every right to be angry with them and kill every last living thing in that city? But do you see how I have had mercy on them? Do you see how I've had grace on them? What right, Jonah, do you have to withhold mercy from those on whom I have just poured it out? Friends, this is the mercy of God towards his enemies. If you're here this morning and you don't consider yourself a Christian, the Bible says that you are in fact an enemy of God. I mean, you might deny that. You're either fond of him, but you are. You have decided to run your own life, to sit on the throne of your own kingdom. God, yeah, God may play a part, but that's definitely a subordinate role to yours. He's not the king. He serves you. I was once an enemy of God as well. In our sin, we all were. We've all wanted our own way, not his. But listen to what Romans chapter 5 says. It says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And listen to this, that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. See, we deserved God's judgment, just like Nineveh. But God, just like Nineveh, reached out to us in extreme mercy and gave his son to bear our punishment. The the fire of destruction that Jonah wanted to see plunged onto Nineveh. Jesus took that for you and for me. He bore that on the cross and he defeated our sin. Not because of anything we have done, but only because of everything he has done, we now are saved. We know God's mercy, not his judgment. Christ knew the judgment for us. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, or if this is a way you've never really thought about being a Christian before, you might be God's enemy. But through Christ, if you will repent and turn from your sin, you will be made his child, adopted into his family, given a home in heaven eternally and Christian brothers and sisters, church. This is the end of our study in Jonah. I've I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed seeing God's incredible character displayed to his rebellious servants and his enemies. And as we leave this study, do you see how full of compassion God is? He went after Jonah. He went after Nineveh. And then he went after Jonah again. Church, he's gone after us, you and me. That Christian sitting next to you, or the member of the church who's here today or not here today, who just always seems to rub you the wrong way, the person who has hurt you in the church and you feel has wronged you deeply, Jesus has died for that person. Will you withhold forgiveness and nurse bitterness against someone when God has poured out forgiveness on them? When he has hammered out all his anger against that person instead on his beloved son. Christian, are you God? Are you God that you would hold something against someone when even God doesn't hold it anymore? You know, there's been times in my life where I have been enslaved by bitterness. And maybe that's you this morning. It just gnaws at you. Church, you will only be free when you give that up, when you give up being king and judge. Church, we must repent, both to others and to our God, for our slowness to mercy. I I assure you, by the word of God, we will only find freedom in realizing how wicked we were, how undeserving of grace we were, and rejoicing that God has extended his loving embrace even to us. You know, we're we all fans of mercy until it's extended to those we hate. We're all fans of God's judgment until it's focused on us and our sin. And so we might well find ourselves at times with Jonah saying, we're angry, angry enough to die. And when you find yourself in that place, and, and as you find yourself this morning, church, dear church, look in your sinful anger to your Savior, who was compassionate, compassionate enough to die, compassionate enough to bear our sins for us. And I think this is a key thing for us to learn if we're to grow in unity as a church. So as we close, before I close the sermon in prayer, I'm just going to allow for a moment of quiet prayer for us. I would just exhort you, church family, search your own heart, search where anger or bitterness or uh, frustration might exist. And remember that those in the church to whom that's targeted have been forgiven by God. And ask the Lord to soften your heart towards him and towards others. Oh, Loudon Valley Baptist Church, may we be a church that rejoices and loves one another freely because we see how freely the love of our Savior has been shed on us. So let's pray silently and then I'll close this. Lord, I humble myself. I need these words just as much as everyone else in this room, and so I pray that you would help us. Help us to be slow to anger and abounding and steadfast love for one another. Help us to love one another in the way we have been loved so faithfully in Christ. Lord, we ask for those who may be present with us this morning who don't know your love in that way. Who remain enemies against you. Lord, would you soften their hearts? Would they see Jesus bleeding on the cross, taking their judgment for them, and would they turn to you in repentance and faith? Lord, we love you. We we love each other, however imperfectly. We pray that you would come again soon and bring us to yourself. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.